Good morning, all. Good morning to uh, all you moms out there. Happy Mother's Day and uh, to the mothers in my life. God bless you for all that you do. Today we're uh, finishing up our series called The Story. Uh, last summer we started in the Garden of Eden with the first chapter of the first book of the Bible, Genesis. And today we end in a restored Garden of Eden in the last chapter of the book of Revelation. I hope that you have a better grasp of the story of God's plan of redemption. I know that I have learned so much from it as well. I want to ask you a question today. Have you ever felt competing claims between your faith and the world that you live and work in? In my early years, uh, my calling to be a pastor was viewed oftentimes as a role that helped people and that made a positive contribution to the world. But 40 years later, that has changed sometimes to ambivalence and even on rare occasions to hostility. In other parts of the world, it can mean losing your job, it can mean imprisonment, or, or even worse. The fastest growing church right now in the world is in Iran, and it's led by women. They have no buildings. They meet in homes for worship, which is illegal. They have no power. They have no financial resources. And if they are caught, they are arrested. You ever wondered what you would do if, if you lived in a culture that was hostile uh, towards your faith? Well, the book of Revelation was written to address a very similar crisis that was happening to the churches in in Asia Minor, near the end of the first century. It was written around 90 A.D. and addressed to seven churches in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And it was near the end of the reign of the emperor Domitian, who ruled from uh, about 81 A.D. to 96 A.D. And it was under his reign that the empire began to crack down again upon the church. Now, for the state, it was more a question of loyalty than it was anti-religious feelings. You see, Caesar was the Lord, and it was expected that all good citizens would worship the emperor as God. Uh, even to enter the Agora, the, the marketplace in the city of Ephesus, the, the shopper was expected to offer incense at the entrance and to say simply, Caesar is the Lord. That was it. And maybe that doesn't sound like a big deal, uh, but wouldn't it make you uncomfortable if every time you went to the mall, you had to say, the president is Lord? You see, for those first century Christians, Jesus was the Lord, not the emperor. Well, Revelation was written by a man named John. The ancient church believed it was the apostle John who who wrote the gospel along with the three letters by, by that same name. But there's also some evidence it might have been written by somebody else with the same name. We're just not sure. But if it was John the Apostle, he would have been an old man by now. And tradition has it that the Apostle John lived, died, and, and was buried in Ephesus. So he would have been very much aware of what was happening in these churches. But at the moment, he is in exile on the island of Patmos, off the coast of Ephesus. And it's where Rome sent her political prisoners. And he is there, he says, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. 
And it's the Lord's day, and he says that he is in the Spirit when he hears this loud voice telling him to write on a scroll what he's about to see and then to send it to these seven churches. And so John has this vision, and it's a strange one. It's a prophecy of, of what is yet to come. A playwright, G.B. Shaw, said that it's a curious record of a drug addict's vision. Well, I don't think that's what it is. But, but even Martin Luther struggled, saying he didn't find that the book was very edifying to the uh, ordinary believer. And, and popular books and, and movies about it have sometimes misunderstood its purpose, trying to find a, a blueprint in it for the end of the world. And as a result, a lot of people find that the book somewhat intimidating and threatening, so they don't read it. But you know, the book of Revelation is the only book in the Bible to say, blessed is the one who reads it and takes to heart what is written in it because the end is near. So we don't want to ignore the book of Revelation. You see, a big part of the problem is that it, we don't understand the apocalyptic style of literature that is written in. It has lots of symbols and, and metaphors and, and Old Testament allusions and numbers, lots of numbers, especially the number seven. There are, there are seven spirits and, and seven lampstands, seven stars, seven churches, seven seals, seven angels, seven trumpets, seven thunders. And we see similar writings in Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, even parts of Second Thessalonians. But the word apocalyptic means literally the unveiling, and that's what John is doing. You see, Jesus didn't give John this vision so that we could spend uh, 2,000 years arguing about which chart is right or, or whether we're premillennialists, amillennialists, or postmillennialists, or who the Antichrist is. No, it was written down by a pastor to strengthen the courage and, and the faith of his flock and to give them hope and victory in the face of suffering and hard times. John's vision begins with Jesus. And it's like anything you've ever imagined Jesus looking like. He's dressed in a robe. Okay, we get that. But his hair is like is white like wool, his eyes are blazing fire, his, his feet are like bronze, and in his mouth is this two-edged sword, and he stands among seven lampstands that represent the seven churches. That's where the vision begins. And so to each of the churches, Jesus finds something to commend them for. He commends them for their works, for their service, for their faith. He commends them for standing up to tribulation and, and not backing down. All of them he commands except the church of Laodicea. He has nothing good to say about this church. Folks, if Jesus can't say something to say, say if Jesus can't say something good about your church, <laughs> that's pretty sad. <laughs> he calls them lukewarm. He says, you're neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were either one or the other. You see, someplace along the way, their, their faith had cooled off. They'd become complacent. Their faith had shifted into neutral, and they no longer cared. But it's not just Laodicea. Jesus has a word of, of, of warning for most of the churches as well. Ephesus has lost her first love. Pergamon 
is too compromising. Sardis is dead. Thyatira has a woman he calls Jezebel who is leading some of the members astray. He points out each of their strengths and, and also their weaknesses. And the remedy for them all is the same. They need to make some changes. They, they, in a word, they need to repent. You see, there are no perfect churches and the church is always in need of reform. And so if you and I, if the church is to be the light of the world, that light needs to be shining brightly to lead the way, and we need to repent. Well, we need to believe in the power of God to change us and to change things. We've got to let Him work through His church to turn us around, to let Him confront us and to heal us and to transform us. And we need to repent of our lukewarmness. We need to repent of our complacency, our, our willingness to tolerate evil and, and, and racism and injustice. And it begins, Jesus says, with us, with the church. Well, after the Lord finishes with the church, John sees a door opening, and he's given this incredible opportunity to see what is going on in heaven. And as he looks, what does he see? He sees a throne. And who is seated upon the throne? It is the Lord. And all of heaven is gathered around, and they are worshiping with passion before the throne. God is at the center of this heavenly worship. Now think about that for a moment. What would that have meant for, for John and for his first century readers? It would have meant everything. God is on the throne. His majesty, his, his glory, his power, his lordship. It would have told them in a very powerful way that, that God was in control, not the emperor of Rome, not their unfortunate circumstances, not their suffering, but God alone is in control of the universe. And in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, John writes, From Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of earth. And in verse 8, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So Jesus is not just a ruler. He is the ruler. He's not just one of, of many gods. He is the God. He is Alpha and Omega. That's the first and the, and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. In other words, he is the first and last, and he is everything in between. He is all-encompassing, everything. Now, when we hear the word king, we, we think about the sphere of government. We tend to divide up power into government, education, media, and the arts, and so on. But in the first century world, that John wrote, kings ruled everything. And so when he writes that Jesus is the ruler of the kings on earth, he is saying the lordship of Jesus extends over every single thing, every area of life. So what does that mean for the church today? It means that Jesus is lord over Donald Trump. That he is Lord over Mitch McConnell and, and, and Nancy Pelosi. He is Lord over Ronaldo and Beyonce and, and Taylor Swift. He is Lord over Sean Hannity and Anderson Cooper. He is Lord over Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong-un and Jeffrey Bezos and Bill Gates. 
It means he is Lord over Main Street and Wall Street. He is Lord over 1600 Pennsylvania uh, Avenue and over Constitution Avenue and Madison Avenue and Parkin Avenue. He is Lord over uh, Hollywood Boulevard and Lord over Times Square and Lord over Cincinnati. And I challenge you to go home today and take a look at the, take a look at the address on your home and guess what? He is Lord there as well. You may not know it, but he is. And the day is coming, Paul says in the book of Ephesians, when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. <laughs> on every street, every avenue, every road, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There are no exceptions. He is the King. He is the ruler of kings on earth. He is God Almighty. And that fact alone should put all of your problems into perspective and it will give you hope for your future. Well, after this glimpse into heaven, John sees a scroll with seven seals on it, but nobody worthy to open it. And for some reason, it, it crushes John. It, it, it breaks him and he, he begins to cry until one of the heavenly beings points to a lamb looking as if it had been slain over near the throne of God. And this lamb takes the scroll and all heaven bursts into a song of praise and adoration and they fall face down and they worship. <laughs> in fact, you'll see a lot of worship in the book of Revelation. And the lamb opens the first seal and for the next 20 chapters, God's judgment is unleashed. And this is where I get uncomfortable. I mean, honestly, I'd like to stop reading there and skip over to the end of the book. Because the judgment of God is a, is a topic that makes us uncomfortable because it seems inter contradictory to the image of God as a loving God. But it can be a good thing. Years ago, I, I developed a cough that would not go away, and I tried to ignore it, but finally Melinda talked me into seeing a, a doctor, and he, he listened to my chest, and he took x-rays, and after all of that, he sat me down, and he explained that he could find no physical reason for my cough. And then he began to ask me strange personal questions like, how's your home life, and are you having stress? at work. And I knew what he was getting at, that uh, my cough was psychosomatic. And I wasn't sure I liked his diagnosis. You know, I wanted him to, to give me a pill, not a lecture on stress management. But he was right. And a, few, you know, a week or so later, that cough was gone. And so that cough, you see, was, was kind of like an alarm uh, warning me that something was wrong so that I could take action to correct the underlying problem. In the same way, God's judgments are a warning. They, they point to the truth that something is not right. They warn us that there are consequences to our actions. William Barclay, the late Scottish theologian, wrote this. He said, At the back of it all, there is the permanent truth that no person and no nation can escape the consequences of sin. It's God's warning of human suffering that lies ahead if we refuse to change our ways. 
And so the lamb opens uh, the first seal, and a white horse appears. And upon it, a rider with a bow, and an arrow, and a crown. And the rider is sent out to conquer. And, and this rider represents military conquest. And then the second rides out with a sword on a horse that is fiery red, and he takes peace from the earth. The third is riding a black horse, holding a pair of scales, and it represents economic disaster, runaway inflation, and inequality, where even a, a quart of wheat costs an entire day's wage. And then the fourth rider is a, on a pale horse who represents death and Hades, both physical and spiritual death, and because, you see, famine and pestilence always follows economic collapse. And isn't it interesting how timeless these things are. That each of these, these horsemen is both ancient and contemporary. That every generation has experienced their destruction. There's always been rulers who have lusted after power. There's always been war. There's always been times of economic chaos and widespread poverty. And here we are now, suddenly, in the midst of our own global chaos. And there's always been death, and there's always been pestilence. And even as modern medicine has found cures for ancient diseases like smallpox and the bubonic plague, even new ones arise to take their place, HIV, Ebola, SARS, MERS, and now this COVID-19. But there's something else that we learn from Revelation, and it's kind of startling. And, and these horsemen, you see, are under the command of God. The seals are broken by Christ. They come forth only at the command of the four living creatures, and they're given certain restrictions on what they can and cannot do. They ride forth only under the control of God. There's two things here that we learn about judgment, and the first is this, is that judgment is meant to be correctional. They, they are meant to teach us something. Now, one example I can think of is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The Apostle Paul talks about <clears throat> a thorn in his flesh. Now, what exactly that was, we're not really sure. But we know that it came from Satan, for Paul tells us so. But we also know that God used it for good in Paul's life to teach him something about God's grace. And though Paul prayed three times that God would remove it, God told him, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. In other words, this thorn in his flesh had a redemptive purpose. God didn't cause it, but God used it. In the same way, famine and, and, and war and pestilence and poverty are all the result of human sin. But God does use them for a redemptive purpose. You see, the presence of the four horsemen is an indictment of a deep moral and spiritual problem in our world that we need to deal with. We cannot ignore it. Now, the second, second thing that we know is that judgment is conditional. See, we, we see a great example of that in the book of Jonah. God tried to send him to Nineveh uh, to warn them of the consequences of their actions, and Jonah said, no thanks, and he took a boat going the exact opposite direction. He wanted Nineveh to experience God's judgment. He wanted to see Israel's enemy destroyed, but, but three days in, in the belly of a whale changed his mind, convinced him otherwise, and he goes to Nineveh, he preaches a message of repentance, and the people listened. They realized their wrongful behavior, and they made a vow to change their way. And the Bible says that when God saw how they turned from their evil ways, that God repented. 
God changed his mind. God repented of his plan. God's judgment was averted. God averts judgment if we change our ways. And if that's true, that means we have a big part to play. You know, sometimes we take Jonah's part and we prefer to, to sit back and do nothing and wait for the end to come. We say, let the world go to hell. We don't care. But clearly, you and I, we have a mandate from Jesus himself to alleviate suffering where we can. And we can't allow our hearts to grow cold or, or immune to the warnings, having seen too many uh, advertisements wanting us to contribute to for starving children. You see, generosity and, and service and, 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 and uh, faithfulness is the antidote for our cynicism. We must not grow weary of the warning of the four horsemen because it is a warning for all of us. Now, some Christians uh, will tell me that knowing there's a final accounting makes them nervous. <laughs> My friends, you have nothing to be nervous about. Our sins are totally covered by the blood of Christ, totally forgiven. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God wants us to have great confidence in Him and to trust Him. Yes, God knows and will share with us the truth about our lives. Just as he'll bring all things to light and set all things right, he's going to do that with you and me. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, Their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and that fire will test quality of each person's work. The quality of my work will be tested, but it will be a good thing. And it will be clear that God's amazing grace is what leads us home. Well, finally, and most importantly, Revelation teaches us that God wins. That God has the final say. That Jesus is coming back, and when he returns, that's the end of history as we know it. Beginning in chapter 12, we have this cosmic war that breaks out. A, a dragon goes to war with Michael and his angels. And then a beast comes out of the sea, and then another beast comes from the earth. And, and, and they try to deceive the world with signs and wonders, and they make everybody take the mark of the beast, which is 666. And then John sees a prostitute sitting on a scarlet beast, and it, it symbolizes a great city. It's called Babylon, but all of John's readers would have known that was a code name for the city of Rome. The city is overthrown and there's a thousand years of peace, the millennium. And then one giant battle over Jerusalem and all the forces of evil surround the city and, and John says the armies are, are, are so huge they look like the sand of the sea. It looks like this is going to be the, the biggest battle ever fought in the history of the world but it lasts only a moment. The outcome was never in doubt. And then John sees a new heaven and a new earth. And this is what he writes. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a voice, a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear 
from their eyes. And there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Eden is restored to God's original intention. Paradise lost, paradise regained. We need to remember this, that God alone is the ultimate power, that he has no rival, that he is the creator of the universe, that he has created me indeed, he, he loves me, has a plan for my life. And however fearful or uncontrolled the forces of darkness on earth may seem to be, they cannot annul nor ever eclipse this one fact, this greater fact, that God has the final say. No matter how out of control your life feels, the ultimate truth is that God is in control. What a difference that will make in our life when we come to believe that. Amen. Let's pray. God, in the midst of uh, conflict, in the midst of turmoil, in the, in the midst of confusion of our personal lives and of our world, God, remind us of that one fact, that vision that John had, you seated upon the throne, totally in control of the universe. God, help us to place our trust, our faith, our lives in you. Help us to surrender our lives, Lord, to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We pray in Christ's name.